From Small Data Industries, this is Art and Obsolescence. I'm your host, Ben Finoradin. Welcome back, everyone. I hope your week is off to a great start. My producer and I are back from our bike tour, fully recharged and so happy to be back here with you this week for another episode. And folks, you better buckle up because this week's conversation with artist Ian Cheng is going to go some wild places. The interpretive structure that is your your mind and your body that interprets reality stably, man, it can be programmed and hacked. Um, and it was worth knowing how far you could program and hack it. Oh, by the way, if you're new here, where are my manners? Welcome. On this show, I sit down with artists, collectors, professionals, people like curators, conservators, and all kinds of people that are shaping the past, present, and future of art and technology. Before we get started today, I wanted to ask you all a favor. If you are a regular listener of the show, you've noticed by now that there are no commercials, and that's no accident. This podcast is a nonprofit operation, thanks to the nice folks at the New York Foundation for the Arts who handle all of the money stuff for this podcast. Operating costs for the show are incredibly low, but I want to ensure that I'm able to support and equitably pay artists that come on the show because, well, that's just the right thing to do. Artists can't pay the rent with exposure. So if equity and supporting artists is important to you, please help me make that happen by heading over to artandobsolescence.com where you can find a donation button. And you know what? Go ahead. You you do it right now. I'll wait. You're doing it, right? Now, if you're not in a place to donate to help us in our work to support artists, I totally get it. But the good news is there are so many ways that you can help that are totally free. You can subscribe if you haven't already, leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram at art obsolescence tell a friend about the show all of that helps immensely now without further delay today's guest ian chang has been building worlds and arguably a whole universe within self-playing video games or simulations as well as drawings prints and other media since around 2012 and you know i could totally nerd out and tell you about how the software that powers Ian's simulations is sentient and always evolving and actually requires special levels of care from conservators as though it were a living creature. But really, the thing that has always drawn me to Ian's work is that experiencing any piece of his feels as though you are just getting a glimpse into an expansive and deeply rich world where futurism, utopia, dystopia, cognitive science, and corgis all go to play. But as always, we start from the beginning to find out what was the training that led Ian's neural network to create this rich body of work? Uh, Yeah, so I grew up in the San Fernando Valley. It's a suburb of uh, Los Angeles, it's basically like strip malls and uh, Starbucks and car dealerships. Um, um, the best image I have of it is like in Paul Thomas Anderson movies like Magnolia or Punch Drunk Love or Boogie Nights. Um, that's like my neighborhood in Boogie Nights. Um, it's an area called Chatsworth. 
My parents were graphic designers. They're retired now. They immigrated from Hong Kong in the mid-70s, uh, and they both applied to go to Art Center in Pasadena. And so they, they went straight into um, school for graphic design, and that's where they met. Ever since a very young age, they were... Um, very encouraging and exposing me to uh, art and they had tons of art books lying around and my, my mom came over my mom and dad came over to new york recently and she said i was drawing like images of a fan um because we had like a, a fan that i was obsessed with i guess when i was two starting at two years old i was like tr mastering trying to draw a circle to mimic this, the shape of this fan. And I have a daughter who's two years old who just turned two now. And I see how she draws and it's kind of this like more scribbly way. And so my mom's like, yeah, look, like I knew you were going to be something like kind of, I kind of knew you were going to be an artist of some kind. So I guess I was very interested just intuitively and consciously with drawing when I was a, when I was a young kid. My parents would take me to Malibu um, sometimes and there are these tide pools there. Uh, that I was fascinated with. It's the area of the beach where the waves are kind of protected um, by either uh, kind of rock or sand formations. And uh, there are these little tide pools where um, you can see different kinds of sea anemone or like little like shellfish. And often some creatures that you couldn't tell if they were a plant or an animal or uh, just a piece of garbage. And so I was always fascinated with these micro ecosystems and certainly that later influenced um, my work making these simulations. But uh, yeah, I was very, um, I'd say I was very alone as a kid. I was, I'm an only child, but I was never really lonely, if that makes sense. I mean, I don't know if this is true. I'm going to find out with my own kids, but I think that I'd like to think that indirectly cultivates a sort of imaginative childhood and uh a sense that your imagination is an important thing to like dwell in. So I definitely drew a lot for myself and would wander like empty lots near, near my home. And yeah, just do a lot of solitary things that I think kind of what an artist does now at, at my wedding, actually, I was thinking, um, cause I had to give a speech and I had to, wanted to dress on my parents and my, my, my wife's parents, but in regards to my parents, it's so funny cause you think of Asian parents as, uh, very academically minded, which was definitely true. There's no question about that. But because my parents were graphic designers, I was trying to square that with like their passion for the arts. And I realized like, well, in China, that's just part of the culture. Like her, their parents loved calligraphy, music and dance. And even the way um, when you speak Cantonese or Mandarin, there's different tones. You're almost in a way familiar intuitively with singing to just to speak Mandarin uh, or Cantonese. And so like arts was like in their ancestry in a way. Um, that's the way I started to like think about them um, because growing up, I always had this true stereotype that they were very academically minded. They wanted me to just like excel at SATs in school, which they did. But I felt very fortunate that they balanced that with a love for graphic design, movies, uh, and, and, and art. And especially with movies, my mom would take me movie hopping on Saturdays where we we get in there at like 10 a.m. and watch, God, like six movies in a day. Uh, uh, this one day in 1999, I remember we, we saw, I think we saw Being John Malkovich, American Beauty, The Insider, Three Kings, um, and maybe Waking Life or Princess Mononoke, like all in one day. I mean, my mind was blown. It was super formative. Like that, that, that one day of movie hopping was like literally mind blowing. 1999 was super, like it was every, I felt like every mature Hollywood director was trying to get in their best work before the millennium happened.
what happened from there? Um, did you go to a traditional um, art school for undergrad? What happened next? So I went to UC Berkeley and I studied um, cognitive science and I double majored in art. But my yeah, my interests start to shift toward um, trying to understand how the mind works and how people's behaviors are formed, how personalities form. At the time, cognitive science, I mean, they, they build it as this kind of... I don't know, like an Avengers of uh, like dis- like like majors, where it was like philosophy of mind, neuroscience, computer science, linguistics, all kind of rolled wrapped up and rolled into one one major. So I thought, oh yeah, that that checks all my marks of interesting things I would be interested in at at nineteen, uh, eighteen and nineteen. So weirdly, it was the dark age of AI, like ideas of neural networks, deep learning. That that was all theoretical and in textbooks, but no one could prove that out. Um, the, there, there were no graphics cards back then. No one had any way of uh, demonstrating that this kind of crazy idea of neural nets could, could, could do anything. Uh, so I studied all this stuff with the intent of learning more about AI at the end of the day, but there was just nothing to do with it at the time. Studying CogSci was like a hedge to do something, have some realistic, pragmatic skills or like something seemingly useful in the Bay Area, even though it kind of wasn't. Being an artist was definitely not on my mind at that age. Um, I double majored in art and I was obviously very interested in art. I was doing a lot of painting at the time. I took a video class that was very interesting. And then I, I took a kind of a life-changing class in retrospect. It was a class on Maya, which is a 3D, you know, um, 3D modeling and animation program. I just thought this would be interesting. I, and it was, uh, it was a class taught by an artist called Greg Niemeyer. And he had us all learn trial by fire. We had to make short films um, in 3D when, you know, this stuff was pretty primitive. And so, yeah, I was able to write and direct and animate like my own short. And that definitely opened up a lot of doors toward understanding my own aptitude toward picking up software and trying to combine that artistically with animation and narrative storytelling, things that I'm interested in work, literally working on now as my current project. I can't tell you how many times I think back now, now that I have two kids and um, I make the work that I make, how many just random decisions that I made or were made for me that led me here. I, I just, it's, it's unfathomable. It's scary to think about. So after art school, um, was there a kind of like series of unfortunate day jobs <laughs> or did you just, uh, kind of had a meteoric, uh, rise to art stardom? <laughs> uh, no, no. I mean, it, so I had no idea I was going to, this is 2006. I graduated from Berkeley and then my first job out of college was um, uh, at an entry-level position at Industrial Light and Magic, which is a visual effects uh, post-production studio um, originated by George Lucas to deal, deal with the visual effects for Star Wars. But then later, you know, they would just bid and contract out VFX work for blockbuster movies. And so I had an entry-level job at Industrial Light and Magic, and that was extremely inspiring, um, you know, having grown up with movies and being a creature of narrative, like... To, to be involved and see how the technical and artistic sides really meet in visual effects was for me very, very exciting. The, the creation of illusions, especially at ILM where they were, you know, at that time already well advanced, shift away from physical models and uh, kind of tactile material illusion to, of course, digital illusion. Um, you know, they were had their own internal software of everything that we have commercially out here. They have their own internal version of that they've written themselves plus the external stuff. So it's like kind of mind blowing what they've created there to be able to make movies 
and visual effects more realistic, but also continually doing like insane R&D. Every movie was like a challenge for them to up their game. And in particular, I remember they were working on the Pirates of the Caribbean, one of the sequels, and there's like some climactic scene where it was a giant whirlpool and like Jack Sparrow and Davy Jones, the octopus guy, were fighting across their ships while spiraling into this whirlpool. And they were trying to simulate water particle for water particle, a whirlpool that was at the scale that Gore Verbinski, the director, wanted, which is an enormous like storm level scale whirlpool. And they're trying to simulate that at scale in order to like understand and then, of course, dr- dramatize a whirlpool at that scale. Of course, you would never see that in real life. Anyways, like I was so outside of that process, but I knew that they were doing that. And I could like kind of peek in on some of their dailies and just seeing the undertaking of such a ridiculous, absurd problem. It was r- extremely beautiful to see that, um, that you could like devote yourself to a ridiculous problem, making a like a giant, absurd whirlpool, but then trying to simulate that with the fidelity of reality was uh, something that obviously inspired me to develop my own simulations later. But at the time, I had no mind for making art on my own. I was just, honestly, I was trying to make a living and trying to figure out who I was. And um, I was 22 at the time. I didn't know who I was. So I was just kind of doing that, you know, finally having some spending money on my own and ability to rent my own apartment because I, that job was like good enough for me at the time. Just to put a pin in that, I would pause and say also at the time, because it's Berkeley, um, you know, a lot of what eventually drove me to things I'm interested in now in art were uh, honestly like the psychedelics that were just available and lying around at the time. So there's a lot of like (laughs) mushrooms and LSD experiences there that I think really opened me up um, internally as a person, primarily because I think I was much more engineer and how do I say left brain minded as a person back then. And then it took something like these early psychedelic experiences Uh, It sounds so cheesy to say this, but it's nice to have a vision quest when you're that age to sort of figure out who you are. And in fact, I would almost like argue if I had to do this again, even maybe with my own kids, uh, or I think maybe the future of schooling, like I think kids at that age in the early 20s should have psychedelic experiences just to kind of feel out the edges of what it feels like to turn over every stone in your mind and sort of, you know, for a moment, reduce your ego to nothing and get you out of your own rigid patterns. I think it's almost, it was almost the perfect time to do that for me. It didn't lead to the epiphany. Oh, I got to be an artist and I got to make exactly this, but it did just make me more open as a person. Mm, Yeah. There's all this other stuff going on that I haven't, haven't been paying attention to. Yeah. It's not just about like, you know, your relationship and then like, you know, getting a job and like, where's your apartment? Like those things feel small on on psychedelics. Those are like small problems. And it was good to have a little bit this shift in perspective, like, oh, there's a lot of other things out there. And it takes so little to shift your, I guess, normative idea of what reality looks and feels like. It's not that stable, actually. The interpretive structure that is your your mind and your body that interprets reality stably, man, it can be programmed and hacked. Um, and it was worth knowing how far you could program and hack it. And so I still think about those experiences to this day. And I, I, I mean, we can get into more later, but like um, it's definitely something that has influenced my work a lot. That's that's interesting to hear. And, and I think makes a lot of sense because something I was going to say is that, you know, I think that um, artists who... Uh, begin their careers working in the motion graphics world 
I think that there are, there's very few who, you know, like you and I think of like Tabor Robach, um, who just like have worked in the industry, like as a professional and then make that leap into the contemporary art world. And I think one of the reasons for that is just that there is such a high bar of craft that has to be developed and just like Mm. getting, getting inside that process. And it's just so painstaking and just like really, really specific. And like you were saying, so left brain. Um, Sure. You know, when I did my MFA, I was surrounded by a lot of uh, animators, like people who are going on to do it professionally and dabbled in a bit in it myself. And that was something I noticed that it can actually just be very difficult to be practiced in that specific hand skill, that craft, and then also just be mentally loose enough to be making art and to be making good art. Yeah, I think uh, what you're saying is really true. Uh, You know, the craftsmanship of making visual effects, and that includes everything from modeling, rigging, virtual lighting, all the way up to like animation, which is I have so much respect for, but is extremely labor intensive, is almost a, a whole different part of your mind than what's required to have imagination and taste in a way about what direction you're even headed. Like, what are you making an animation of versus like, can I make a good animation? They're very different parts of the brain and it's hard to reconcile those two things. Um, I always think I'm always amazed when I see movies where it's like, like a Shane Carruth movie, like upstream color, where it's like every department is him. There's something like Da Vinci about it, but there's also, it must be something wrong with you in a way. Cause it, I mean, I've been in that position myself where like, oh, I know how to do a little bit of everything. I'm just going to do it myself. I've definitely had that attitude at various stages in my art practice. And um, it's always come at a huge cost, um, either just physically, like my health, or it's let me down a rabbit hole that was unnecessary, like just obsessing over one detail because I really didn't want to face my other 10 other jobs I had on the same project. But yeah, it's, it's a it's a challenge to, to, to balance. I think the upside actually of having worked at Industrial Line Magic and actually been exposed to that entire tech stack that's required to make that final image, I think it's really been beneficial because it's helped me be able to interpret the answer no um, correctly now as uh, someone who now, now I work with other people who do some of that. Knowing what is possible, not possible to some degree has been really beneficial. Like I remember uh, the director, David Fincher, he directed his first movie was Alien 3 and he he was, um, which I think is like not that bad. He was kind of jerked around by the studio. He had all these senior like cinematographer and like editor and even actors who, who he was just a kid at the time. They were all telling him, no, you can't do that. And he vowed after that movie to learn everything there is to learn about every department so that he could always fight the no with his own information and experience. Even if the no actually in the end was was right, he could at least, you know, say it with confidence, like that's the right decision. People say no for all kinds of reasons. Maybe they're having a bad day. Maybe it's just too much trouble. Maybe it seems impossible, except for if you thought about this one other way. And so I really don't regret any of that experience of just learning every single aspect of visual effects production. I think it's given me a lot of like credibility and authority to, I don't know, push for things that I really want that I think are within the realm of possibility. So eventually, somewhere along the line, Ian realizes that he wants to full-time pursue becoming a contemporary artist, and he moves to New York City to start this new chapter. 
I went to grad school after industrial light magic. I went to Columbia and I got uh, my MFA in visual arts there. I didn't do very much there. I still was trying to figure myself out. I didn't make much work. And shortly after, um, I started making work using the video game engine Unity. Um, I was literally sitting in Whole Foods on Houston Street, trying to figure out who I was and what I was doing. And this was like on my day off from working. And at the time I was working for the artist Pierre Wieg and uh, another artist, Paul Chan, uh, who were both very inspiring. Um, yeah, super inspiring. Uh, obviously artists uh, I'm inspired by, but inspiring kind of mentors and people to work for at the time. Um, I learned so much about just the rhythm and texture of how to live and be an artist. You know, from Paul, I really learned how to say no to things. Um, And from (laughs) Pierre, I really learned, uh, I don't know, this kind of sensitivity to stupidity is the wrong word, but he said this one thing to me once where he said, every, every artwork needs a coefficient of stupidity. And by that, he didn't mean that it had to be stupid, but that it had to like, speak very clearly and plainly to the unconscious. It was important that art isn't like presents itself as smart or trying to be smart or trying to make you smarter, that it actually gives you an image or an experience and that you break that image or experience with maybe one gesture. A great example near the end of when I was working with him was his documented piece where he had this one of the features was this dog and had one pink leg. I asked him, why, why just the pink leg? Why not other kind of interventions on the dog? And he said, oh, you just need to break the image of dog just once in a clear way so that the mind of the viewer still understands as a dog and then understands you've broken the image of the dog. If you start adding like a hat and uh, maybe like some artificial like feathers, then you start playing dress up and role play. And then you're no longer breaking the image of a dog. You're just turning a dog into an actor essentially. And so this coefficient of stupidity really stuck with me that um, art really is powerful once you start talking to the unconscious and the unconscious speaks in stupid terms. And by stupid, I don't mean like unintelligent. I mean like prefrontal cortex. Um, that makes sense. And so those two experiences like really, really shaped my understanding of what it might mean to be an artist. I still hadn't even realized I should be an artist or I could be an artist at the time, but uh, working for them kind of set a certain mm, model for me in my mind. Wait, but how do you, how do you mean you were, you hadn't fully settled on being an artist? I mean, you were getting your MFA at Columbia. So what was that for you? <laughs> yeah, but it was shattering. I, I don't know what your experience doing MFA was, but for me, it was like, oh, I don't know who the hell I am, what I have to say, what in what form I'm going to say it. Meanwhile, everyone is either, this is my projection, it seemed like every other MFA student was prolifically making the thing that they were meant to make. I remember this walking into the hallway and some of the other painters, for example, they're, they're just like stacks of canvases that they had completed and they were just, they had not room in their own studio. So they're storing in the hallway, their finished paintings. And I just, uh, I felt totally lost and with nothing to contribute. And, and there I was st- studying art where art's the one place I realized where you can choose your own problems, but that is a huge responsibility and a huge void if you don't have a problem to choose. And no one teaches you how to choose that problem in art, and at least at the time in art school. Everyone was very obsessed with either professionalizing or being hypercritical. 
And I think that was a, that's a mistake of art school. I think it persists to this day, this idea that part of your art school education is just to read a lot of critical theory, absorb like kind of pseudo-Marxist positions, and try to somehow do a weird gymnastic acrobatic dance with maneuvering that stuff through an art world where it's quite the opposite. It was very confusing being in grad school. So coming out of grad school, you know, I went to grad school thinking I'd be an artist and I left grad school thinking maybe it's not for me or maybe I don't have it. Uh, have anything to offer um, this place. And I also felt, I don't want to have to think this way. I don't want to have to think every project is about self-reflexive criticality at the get-go. And when I know in my heart that the art that really moves me has some energy of aliveness, has some energy that talks to the unconscious first, maybe the content is something critical, but I think art's first job is to kind of make a neurological bridge to the viewer's mind and like, help them kind of transcend their current state. And the only way I think a person's open enough to do that is by talking to their unconscious mind, not their conscious mind, not their, not their left brain, but their right brain. That's what art always was. And I think it kind of in grad school, I think it loses its way a little bit. And I think the artists I really love, they always seem to rediscover that same old archetypal fact that art at the very least has to talk to the unconscious, whether it's transcendent or not, you know, that depends on the nature of the artwork, how good the art was the times that we live in, all those other factors. But grad school just didn't teach me any of this. And so I left grad school feeling very unsure of who I was and what I was meant to do. Incidentally, right after grad school, the first job I applied to was like an open position, UX position at Google, New York. And they, they, they did not respond at all. And I'm thank you, Google, for rejecting me because if they accepted, it was between that and working for artists at the time. I mean, I had... $400 in my bank account. Like I, I would take that Google job and that would have led me down an entirely different life path. I think, I don't think I'd have the kids I have. I don't think I'd have the marriage I have with my, my wife. Uh, I don't think I'd be making the work I'm making. So maybe I'd be doing something completely different. I'm not saying that would be a bad path, but it'd be very different than where I am now. So when I finally decided to like, you know, start to make work, uh, you know, the big epiphany was at this Whole Foods on Houston Street, where on the second floor, you can like overlook the salad bar. And I remember just sitting there trying to think of who I was, what I was supposed to do, just watching people, you know, pick at the salad bar or like squabble with a Whole Foods employee or, um, I don't know, people weirdly on dates at that supermarket. And I was just watching like this little ecosystem subculture that was transpiring below me. And I just thought, oh, I need to make a video game that plays itself. Like I want to make, I didn't have the word simulation on my mind at the time, but I wanted to like simulate this sort of open-ended living mini ecosystem. And so I did a little research. I found the Unity video game engine, simple as that. And I just started, I said, I'm going to dive into this. I don't know about you, but at that age, like when you like discover a new thing and you have just a little bit of enough energy in it, you can just go super deep into it. So I just went super deep into like C-sharp scripting and like how to just wrangle everything I could out of the Unity game engine. And so for years, I was making these simulations on my own. And then around 2015, um, my girlfriend, now my wife, Rachel Rose, um, she introduced me to one of her friends, uh, Veronica So, who at the time was, you know, she used to be a lead singer of a band, then she was in fashion, then she was in trend forecasting. And then at the time she was uh, starting to produce indie video games for like a indie video game incubator in New York. And um, she said, we should meet. To Rachel's credit, 
she said to me, Ian, like you want to do more and more complex things with your simulations. You don't have to do it all yourself. And this goes back to your earlier point about this tech stack and learning all the nitty gritties of everything, how that can be so consuming of one person's mind that how can you have a vision for what to do with it? As an artist, your job is primarily, first of all, to have a vision, I think. But then, of course, that's necessary, but insufficient. You have to be able to do it. And what parts of it you do, I think, became a question for me because she could, Rachel, to Rachel's credit, again, she could see I was getting really nerdy about certain aspects of making simulations while harboring larger visions, but just feeling, oh, there's never enough time to make all the features or expand the AI in the way that I want. And she's like, talk to Veronica. Maybe she can help you. Met with Veronica. You know, I don't know. We just had um, chemistry and energy. And, you know, I think of her as like my sister now, but really she's been a key part of She's been the producer of all my work since 2015. And it's a multi-hatted job. On one hand, you know, she helps me hire for roles that the particular project needs, but she's also like as the sounding board who I trust the most. Um, you know, there's a lot of dark days as an artist where you don't know what you're doing or you for, you kind of lose the plot or she's there to remind me of like what energy I was thinking of when I first got excited about a project. And then I got her excited about the project. She's always there to remind me of that initial energy, which is always the truest energy, the most unconscious energy that I think um, undergirds a project. Yeah. So it's been a very productive and expansive relationship with her as my producer. And so since working with her, you know, we've slowly in a way, like gathered a loose group of people. They used to be in New York, but now people are everywhere, especially post-COVID, um, who we work with. And production's just expanded and expanded as um, we were able to secure bigger budgets to do bigger projects. And when it comes to your pieces that are manifested, you know, as like large-scale installations, um, do you have a physical studio space where you play around with that kind of stuff? Or do you really just use the installation as the opportunity to like really kind of like render something for the first time? It's the it's the latter. It's the I use the installation as it's it's trippy, man. Like it's it's not the way to do it, but you know, I have a very small shoebox studio on Canal Street. There's some computers in there and it's a place to meet and it's a place for me to like you know, sit, like sit quietly by myself when I need to. But everything happens in Maya or SketchUp with exhibitions. And, you know, I have to say, working for especially Pierre, I remember we were this one show he did at Marion Goodman Gallery where he first premiered these three aquariums for the first time. Like, I remember him obsessing about the exact size of the aquarium, each aquarium and the exact plinth size. And then the benches that would accompany it. I remember how sensitive he was to the user experience of the exhibition. And that always stuck with me as a value that I hold today. And so now when I design exhibitions on Meyer SketchUp, I mean, I'm anal down to the inch, like what is happening with every element of the architecture, how I imagine it's going to feel. But I think having working for Pierre, I have some internalized sense of what six feet means versus a five foot screen versus a six foot screen. I, it's like somehow I've internalized all that by working at his studio. And then when I brought that to just doing it purely virtually and digitally in my own work, I don't know, I kind of have, a, I guess, a sixth sense about scale now. I'm wrong sometimes and I have to like, you know, suffer the consequences of that and readjust, but it definitely helped us to work for someone who was so sensitive to every detail of the experience of the space. It didn't have to look good. It didn't even have to architecturally make sense, but it had to 
feel right. And that feeling is something that you can only do by trial and error. And I think a lot of the trial and error happened like working on the exhibitions of Pierre. I, I feel very lucky as an artist having had that experience because not every artist has that. And it's hard getting exhibitions to feel right. And in a way, that's the first portal that I think as a viewer, you you experience unconsciously even before you uh, really pay attention to the work. I'm curious like what a typical day of practice looks like for Ian. Yeah, I mean, um, it changes, you know, it's definitely changed post-COVID, but I would say there's a few elements that never changed and that are I still really value and try to do. Uh, the first thing I do is this writing technique called morning pages. And it's a really basic exercise, um, but it's uh, basically you sit down in the morning and you just write down without stopping for, I mean, you can set a time. Um, I usually do it for like 20 minutes, but you can, it can even be five minutes. You just write down everything that's on your mind. And of course, you know, what's often on my mind if I'm in the middle of a project is like a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety about if, how things are going, if they're going to go the right way. There's so many creative problems that are unsolved uh, and seem really insurmountable the day before. And I just start writing them down. And the morning is really important because I learned at least about myself. I think this is true of other people too, that my brain's just much more pliable and open in the morning. And so I just start writing things down and inevitably all those anxieties that are now on the page now live there. They don't live inside me. And then they start kind of, if I keep writing and I stick to the time, it naturally morphs into either an idea or just a more positive thought and sometimes a creative solution. And when it, on really good days, um, the anxiety is actually that get written out core them weight themselves down to the, actually the one anxiety that I really have. You know, I found that usually when I'm anxious, it's not that I'm anxious about 10 things, although it feels that way. It, I'm actually anxious about one thing that then has all these side effects that color all these other much more easy problems to resolve. But the one thing I'm anxious about or scared about, that's the thing that I need to core down to and really just take a look at and decide what to do about it, whether to, you know, run away from it or to, to chase it. And morning pages, I mean, without fail, that's why, I, that's why I swear by it. Like it, it unearths all that stuff with ease. It just comes out of you. And so I, I totally swear by doing this and I do it every day during the pandemic. It got kind of like loose, but, uh, I used to do it every day and now I'm resuming doing it every day. So that's one thing that's, that's really stayed as a as kind of habit. And then usually by like 10 AM, 10 30, I'm just kind of working on whatever I was working on the previous day, trying to apply what I learned about myself in morning pages. And then I have a s stupid, but I think useful rule that I don't check or touch email until 1 PM, which is extremely annoying for a lot of people. I, I check it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a total like Luddite here. Like I, I do check it just to like, you know, check just to see. And I like clear out all the spam, but um, I don't respond to email um, when, until it's like, 1 p.m. Because, you know, some emails, they're not like emails. They're like, they're like hydras, you know, they have like five heads and they're asking like five questions. And inside those questions is literally like a week's worth of thought that you would have to put into it. So like emails are secretly not emails. It's really evil what emails are. And so I swore to myself, like, let's treat the morning as sacred, you know? You know, I got my morning pages, I unearthed my anxieties, I find some creative solutions, I tackle some problems from a, a more creative place. And then like, I leave the afternoon for just kind of either grunt work that I would like to do if I listen to a podcast or something and or emails and meetings and um, now more and more spending time with my kids. So I guess there's kind of like two, maybe three fundamental forms that your work takes. Um, 
you know, you have your simulations that are both software, but they're ultimately manifested on some kind of hardware. And you generally treat that as some kind of physical object. Things are manifested physically very specifically, whether it's a screen leaning against a wall or it's a massive array of like, you know, modular LEDs. And then you have your drawings, which my understanding is those are kind of um, almost like documentation of your research in a way. It's like you are developing these worlds and it seems like you do a lot of that on paper. And I really loved it the first time I, I, I saw those. I was curious to ask, you know, your your drawing style really reminds me a lot of some of the underground comics that I was really into when I was in art school. I'm curious, like, what are the influences you're, you're drawing on when it comes to your drawing? No one's ever asked me that before. Um, I read a lot of comic books as a kid. I had a lot of time and I read a lot of comics you know, there was just AOL. So there wasn't, you know, I, you know, I had physical comics, just boxes of comics and I love drawing. So I would just like learn, you know, comic book anatomy as crazy as comic book anatomy was. I've just like copy comic book images, tried to like draw my own fan fiction, just practice drawing faces in a comic book idiom. And then of course, like any other like comic person who looks into comics, like I got into anime and then so I just started drawing a lot of manga stuff just for myself and, you know, eventually to all, all that practice of just drawing bodies and spaceships and, you know, cliche alien jungles. I don't know, like now when I need to articulate a thought to someone I work with, or even just for myself, that's just the way I draw. Like I just draw in this kind of hasty comic book way. I don't know. I haven't consciously thought about this at all in, I guess, decades, but yeah, that's where it comes from. I mean, I was really into like Mobius and H.R. Geiger and like like all these concept artists who were in comics, but then got kind of scooped up by Hollywood to visualize like post-Star Wars, like, new, you know, like Jodorowsky's Dune, that kind of thing, like uh, Alien, Blade Runner. I, I got really into the, the, like this guy, Ralph McQuarrie, who did all the concept art for Star Wars. Got really into that stuff. I don't know. I think the the gen the DNA of all of that is it's not exactly. I mean, it is the style and it is like the kind of accessible way in which those images are drawn. They're very like obviously figurative and legible. But more than that, the ones that really struck me are the ones that have a facility just to draw. But it's not about the quality of the drawing. It's about articulating a world. Like that's why Mobius is infinitely like inspiring for so many people. It's like his drawing's amazing, but just. That's just like a side effect of him articulating a really imaginative world all the time. His imagination couldn't stop. And it was always a coherent imagination. It wasn't like an absurdist imagination. It was one of where he's just articulating entire like alien cultures with great ease. And I, I think that's what always drew me to when I draw and when I think about the worlds I'm making now and I have to draw them, I always try to channel that energy like, oh, draw with the intention to articulate a world. Don't draw to make a good drawing. Mission accomplished because it's like, <laughs> that's one of the things that I, I really love about your work that whether, whether it's looking at your simulations or a print or your drawings, it always feels like it's, it's just catching a glimpse at this it's almost like you're a traveler that's like been to this place and you're like mm. trying to explain it to us <laughs> by any means necessary. And like every time you can tell that like you're only like we as the viewer are only kind of understanding it. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I really like that. I like that mystery and that it feels like it's something that will always be foreign to a certain extent. Like it's not completely understandable. I'm hoping with uh, the project I'm working on now called Life After Bob, it's like a full-on 48-minute narrative built in the Unity game engine running live. But, you know, the drawings we had to make for this, uh, both myself and so excited to hire concept artists for once, hopefully the drawings that maybe you'll eventually see from this project will articulate a world that you will see on screen. I, I hope to kind of... As, as much as I like the mystery too of what seeing a partial world, I hope you uh, will be able to see this new, new work and have it read as legible and exciting to like dive more deeply into it. Oh, fantastic. Can't wait. Your, your work does take these different forms, whether it's software or a print that you hang on the wall or a small drawing that you hang on the wall. And I would even argue the documentation that comes with your work is also very much kind of an artifact. But I'm curious, you know, when when somebody collects one of your pieces, um, what do they what do they get materially? Uh, very simple. They get an app and very few supplementary files around it. Maybe um, a link to a live documentation that's like updated, and the app, the the Unity app itself. That's what they get. That's it. I think you're bringing something up for me that I hadn't really fully realized for myself, which is I like to travel lightly. Like, yeah, I'm making simulations and I can make them on my computer anywhere. I make drawings, not paintings to articulate thought because it's fast, it's cheap, and it's easy. The other thing I started doing and I want to do more of is I want to write more about this idea of worlding and try to articulate thought in either blog form or like an ebook form. But Again, it's like a book form. It's like pretty lightweight. And this thing we're talking about, about DNA and Shakespeare and the Bible, it's like, I think I'm just attracted to feeling light on my feet, even if the work itself can be, as you say, sometimes very Baroque and dense and lots of interlaid systems or, or like narrative ideas. I, I really want to just live lightly. And I think, think I extend that to what a collector gets. I mean, I know other artists do amazing things where they like, they package it very nicely or there's some physical, like, I don't know, it's like custom keychain or like engraved box or something. I just never went down that route. I wanted to make a collector feel as lightweight as I feel making it. A fair amount of the artists that we've spoken to so far are, you know, much later on in their careers. So they've had to deal with a good number of conservation issues, but with somebody who, you know, relatively speaking, is still kind of at the beginning of your journey as a professional artist. I'm curious if you have had to contend with issues of conservation much so far, you know, have have things aged and obsolesced in complicated ways that you've had to deal with? Well, with the simulations there, you know, a lot of them are by design meant to kind of just run forever and the kind of accumulated emergent changes that happen on it which are not infinite. I mean, there are, there's some kind of boundary to it. Those just keep occurring forever. And I have to say, like, I, I've had this conservation conversation a few times with various institutions. And they always ask me like, Oh, did you do the Nam June Pike route where you like save the CRT monitor? In my case, save the, like, I don't know, the Mac mini or the iMac of circa 2015 or like, will your studio like, <laughs> be enslaved to upgrade it forever for us. And it's a catch 22. I don't know which way to do it. And the only thing I've always come back to is, well, if you think of software that's well supported, like the unity ecosystem and unity as a software company really dedicated to supporting all the indie game developers. I mean, they don't know about us artists, 
or maybe they're becoming aware of it now, but supporting the community of people who use their software, if, as long as they're incentivized to maintain Unity, I suppose, and Apple's going to not die tomorrow, I suppose you can count on the network effect of these bigger players in the ecosystem of technology helping preservation indirectly. And that's always been my kind of answer to long-term preservation questions because I actually don't know which is the better way. Do you emulate and maintain hardware and software of its time or do you upgrade the software and the work itself? And for me, the DNA of the simulations, uh, especially like Emissaries and Bob, it's all in the behavior that emerges. It's not necessarily the exact graphics card it's not exactly the exact screen. It's kind of the, D, the DNA of uh, the behavior that emerges in those works is the thing that is, for me, the core of the artwork that needs to be maintained. So as long as that spirit of Bob and its behaviors and the way the affordances and landscape of possibilities in which it can change uh, and evolve as a creature, if that's maintained man, we can show this holographically in the future. We can beam into people's Neuralink brains. I, I, the sky is the limit to me. I have a, my dog, my dog is a corgi. I love that, you know, whatever maniac decided to breed a corgi into that particular shape and size. Well, like that's the thing that lives on. It's the, it's that, those qualities that live on. Or like maybe a closer example is like, you know, really great literature, like, it's awesome that Shakespeare is basically, to me, Shakespeare's DNA. Like you can reinterpret Shakespeare a million different ways. You can reskin it. It can be VR Shakespeare. It can be Shakespeare in the park. But the core DNA of that script and the, the embedded intelligence of the drama and the archetypes that he captured in, in, those, in those plays, that's the thing that matters. How you reskin it, that's just gravy. That's, that's, just evolu- that's just cultural evolution taking hold and opening your arms to that evolution to happen on cultural objects. And I love to get to a more clarified place where I can really design my works with that ethic in mind where like, you know, my dream is that all art and all cultural production is much more alive, like the way software is alive and that it's just subject to evolutionary forces the way that nature is. Um, I think that's more in the spirit of how I've made work and definitely how I, the work I value and how I think. What would you rather be? Would you rather be like the author, the artist of Stonehenge or would you rather be the author of the Bible? And I would much rather be the author of the Bible. Like I would much rather like have made the DNA software that can then get reinterpreted, you know, morphed and whatever, but live on in people as an active living, not even document, as an active living kind of spirit or DNA of spirit than this monumental thing that just has to be, you know, slated off as a preservational site and just has to be frozen in time. Both are equally important, but I guess for me, I would choose the Bible. I would rather be the evolving software. It might. I think it's scary for from a preservation perspective, though. Maybe not for you, I think, but some people I've talked to, they're like, oh, well, like, did you, so did you say CRT or no CRT? <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you were hoping we would, that you'd like to dig deeper into? I mean, personally, I've really, in the last, I would say a couple months, I've been obsessed. This is like maybe a COVID thought that just kind of brewed in me. I've been obsessed with this idea that we touched on earlier, that art really has to talk to the unconscious. And a, um, a writer I really love called uh, Venkatesh Rao, he, he uh, said on Twitter that uh, spirituality is sensitivity to unsystematized realities. I thought that was such a beautiful definition of spirituality. And... I think what he was actually trying to say is that 
it is the human tendency to want to rationalize or um, systematize things you don't understand. And we obviously live in a very volatile, changing, crazy world right now. And the knee-jerk reaction is to either systematize it or like deny that it exists so that just trouble goes away and things return to a normalized state of reality. And his his big thesis is that we're undergoing an irreversible like weirding where things won't get normal again. They'll just get weirder. And the thing that has to change is us internally, how we deal with weirdness. And so that led me to think that, you know, art can help here. And if myself as an artist, I think about this daily now and try to remind myself, but I also think for artists in general, that to be in touch with one's unconscious, that's the best evolved way we internally have to deal with unsystematized realities and live with it. You know, when you dream, at night, it's your brain trying to deal with something in your life that's unsolvable at the moment that your rational, awake, frontal cortex brain just can't do on its own. That's why you have to dream it first to kind of just grope at the answer. It's going to be kind of wrong, kind of messy, kind of associative, but that's the first step to kind of surfing and facing unsystematized realities. And so I've just become kind of obsessed with focusing my own work on trying to talk first in the language of the unconscious to the viewer. Of course, that's very concrete things I want to like, uh, content that I want to share with the viewer. But I think just finding the language to talk to the viewer's unconscious, in the case of Life After Bob, it's starting with a very, a, a very, a very narrative approach. Like, I'm literally, it's a 48-minute narrative. You watch it like an episode of television, and that is... You know, the, the way that music is as fluid a way to talk to your unconscious and your body is, as we know music to be. Obviously, we are creatures of narrative now, especially with streaming television. That's how we all plug into talking to our unconscious every night when we turn on Netflix. And I feel like that language shouldn't be shunned within art. Not that anyone is particularly shunning it, but there is narrative does get a bad rap in art because you can tell bad narratives and you can reprogram people narratives historically, of course. But it is still, I mean, it holds out. It is one of the ways to talk to unconscious and we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think unconscious is, needs more respect and as a way with dealing with the crazy reality we live in. That in psychedelics. With like all the psychedelic research to deal with people uh, with terminal illness, like there's no rational way to deal with death. It's such a deep psychological, physiological problem. Like maybe we have to talk to unconscious more to deal with it. Maybe it already knows a lot um, and we just have to tap into it. Maybe you know more about yourself than you know about yourself. It's just all data that's just kind of deep in the hard drives uh, back there in your brain, but you need something like a psychedelic catalyst or really good art that talks to the unconscious to unlock some of that stuff. Have there been any art viewing experiences for you that have been on that level of like, you feel like they really changed the way you thought about the world or saw the world in a meaningful way? Mm. The one thing that comes to mind immediately is um, Rachel and I, my wife and I, we went to Paris in 2013 together to see um, Pierre Weig's retrospective at the Pompidou. And you think, oh, it's just a retrospect. I'd, I hadn't, I was no longer working in his studio anymore. And I just wanted to see what he had been up to. And I... The experience of being that show, you know, we went back twice, paid a mission twice. Because there, there's something so uncanny about that show. It's so strange where he had, um, not only were all his works technically there as a retrospective, okay, it fulfills that, but they were done in this kind of deliberately um, palimpsest, messy way, things on top of things. 
to the extent where like some of the architecture was just the previous show's architecture, which was a Mike Kelly show where he had just left the walls in the wall labels and just cut through them very brutally. And then just kind of stuck on his work on top. It felt like um, if you could ever do institutional sediment or collage on top of previous shows, that's what this felt like. And just the wildness and the freeness of that, even the catalog itself, it's like his name was all, fucked up with the letters and different places you couldn't even make out it was pierre week unless you knew that was the catalog you're buying the freeness to do that was both like kind of punk but deeper than punk it wasn't just iconoclastic it felt like a kind of um almost like a, a command to be rewilded again and yeah I, I i took a lot of inspiration from that show and it gave me a lot of energy in the the, the years to come from that i know it gave rachel a lot of energy too so when I think about shows that give me energy, they, they of course were the shows that talk to my unconscious and something to, to see something so have so many clear, what I was talking about earlier, there's these like breaks in the image of what you think of as an exhibition. You have an image of exhibition in your mind neurologically, and then you encounter an exhibition that says, Hey, this is an exhibition. It has all the markers of an exhibition, but breaks it in all these clear ways, not obtuse or pretentious ways, just very clear ways. I can't get over this one moment where you're watching the film of the documenta work in the do pink dogs running in the film. And then literally the pink dog, it just runs across, you know, the room. Cause it's also living there in the show. And it's just like, Whoa, you can do that. You can, you can be this alive with art. I, no question. It must've been hell to put together in all the logistics and safety codes and PETA, whatever, but it all added up to this really wild experience that, I just didn't know you were allowed to do. And I think that's a good marker of art that's really alive. You ask yourself, oh, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. Well, and back to where we began with the weight and the complexity of 3D motion graphics and the, the team, massive teams that are required to accomplish those. It's, it's similar with something on the scale of what you're talking about with this exhibition in the sense that there's all of these bureaucratic and logistical hurdles. And it's the skill in navigating all of that as a practiced professional contemporary artist is just as critical for successful ex execution as the, you know, actual quote unquote art making is. And um, it's, it's also fascinating to me that, you know, an exhibition of that quality that's, you know, to have such an impact, it sounds like a hat on you. It requires this almost perfect timing of, opportunity, you know, um, the institution being open to something that ambitious and also just that particular artist being ready for it. Totally. It was a perfect storm. And I can't help but think that there's a, there's a branch of art now that's heading toward, you know, paid experiential, you know, team lab like things. I can't help but think, man, it, it, the, the thing that like unites that in that peer week retrospective is this, mm, this sense of aliveness, but if only like this ex idea of experiential art, uh, they, if they just modeled it off of that beer week retrospective, I would have a lot of hope for experiential art. I still hold out hope for it, but right now it's, it's so, like super, like it, it's amazing on one hand, but it's also quite overly digital and tacky oftentimes optimized for Instagram. And I think, you know, the other end of that spectrum is like maybe the holy end of that spectrum would be like James Turrell's creator. And I can't wait to see that thing. But somehow, like, Pierre's retrospective is a third way, in a way. And I wish you're right to say that it's the right 
artist in the right time to be able to pull something off like that. It's so specific that in a way, it's not a third way that can be turned into some protocol for many other kinds of shows to be like that. Something of that spirit, that level of aliveness, the trouble to make things that alive. You know, I've never paid twice for an exhibition. I paid twice for an exhibition. <laughs> Who does that? I never do that even for a movie, but I did that for... Yeah. Ian, thank you so, so much for this conversation. This has been really enriching for me. And I'm. It was, it's just such a luxury to have an hour and a half to sit down and chat with you like this. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a huge pleasure. And I, uh, I wanted to do this with you for a while. So thank you for asking. And as always, thank you, dear listener, for joining me for this week's conversation. If you enjoyed hearing about Ian's work, well, you are in luck because that project that Ian mentioned that he was working on back when we recorded this interview, well, it's on view right now at The Shed. Life After Bob is on view until December 19th. It's a 48-minute long narrative film animation. And when I saw it, I was just flabbergasted. The work is a deeply weird and stunningly gorgeous mishmash of Ian's simultaneously glitched out and yet refined video game aesthetics. And it's really just a treat to see what I think is Ian's first foray into, well, filmmaking. So do yourself a favor, and if you're in New York City, go see it. And lastly, before we go, I want to ask you one more time a little favor. As I mentioned at the top, and as you probably noticed while listening to the podcast, there are no commercials here. We are a nonprofit operation. So when I say at the end of this podcast every week that we are a sponsored project of the New York Foundation for the Arts, all that means is when you go to artandobsolescence.com and click on donate, your donations will all be managed and handled by the New York Foundation for the Arts. And Operating costs for the show are incredibly low because if it wasn't already obvious, this is a one-person operation and I'm doing everything myself. Uh, So really, this is about supporting our ability to support artists equitably that come on the show. So if equity and supporting artists is important to you, please help me make that happen by going to artandobsolescence.com. And if you are in a position to help, you can make your tax-deductible donation there. Other ways to help, subscribe if you haven't already, wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, etc. Follow us on Art Obsolescence on Twitter and Instagram. Share the clips we're posting there. Tell a friend about the show. All of that helps immensely. Thanks for anything you can do to support this show. I deeply appreciate it. But most of all, thanks for listening. It's always great having you here. Have a great week. Stay safe. My name is Ben Vino Radden, and this has been Art and Obsolescence.